The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Great to see you again. How are you? Well, thank you, Tom. Fine. Thank you. Good to see you, too. Yes. You're doing yes. well? Yes, Father. Great to be back. Good. Good. Uh, Father, would you like to start with any prayer requests tonight? Yes. Uh, one in particular, I, I would ask for prayers for uh, Mrs. Susan Percher. Susan is in the hospital now, so please keep her and her dear husband, Joe, in your prayers. Um, Joe's been battling with illness for quite some time now, but uh, Susan has always been the, the stalwart, the strong one, but she uh, now has uh, apparently fallen victim to some illness, so we, we pray for her as well. And, um, of course, continue praying for the Paul Riley family and the Patricia Tootie and her husband, James, and... Uh, also, Cheryl Johnson and her noble husband, Terry, and uh, quite a few other good souls we know who are suffering right now. In fact, quite a few others. So <laughs> please do keep them all in your prayers. Very good. We can do that. Uh, Father, in our last program, we uh, just briefly touched on the subject of homeopathy and um, just talked a little bit about that, um, what we had had come up with and uh, just our, our brief studies on that uh, on that topic. But I know you received some feedback uh, in response to that uh, most recent discussion. Father, anything that you'd like to follow up with there in regards to that? I'm sure I think there are some comments. We're going to be receiving some information on the subject and we're going to be getting some information from people who are actually traditional Catholics who practice it and have done so for years and they say with uh, some success. So uh, I'll be interested to hear what they have to say. Uh, I mean, I think we were going just based on our impressions and uh, the references to homeopathy in the Catholic Encyclopedia yeah. of, I think it was 1911. And uh, I must admit, I, I found the whole idea somewhat confusing. And for example, uh, Tom, in reading that entry on the history of medicine in the Catholic Encyclopedia and uh, coming to homeopathy, I, I was I was really puzzled when I was reading the basic idea of homeopathy, which seemed to be that if you uh, can uh, induce certain symptoms in a healthy individual, and then you can distill whatever it is that's causing those symptoms and dilute it, dramatically dilute it, and then uh, somehow give those to a person who actually is ill with those symptoms. Um, 
that that could trigger the vital energy of the sick person to fight the well, they didn't call it disease, but to to fight the the the, uh, the uh, symptoms, and that you can actually quote unquote cure someone of uh, symptoms in that way. Now we're going back to I think the 1400s to uh, the expression of how how this works, but I, I couldn't help but think um, the way it was expressed of um, kind of modern germ theory and vaccines and inoculations and so on because i mean the, the idea that you can you can um shall i say um let's say inject someone a healthy person and produce symptoms of disease quote unquote in that person then you can take from that person what you've injected into him so we speak and dilute it down so dramatically and weaken it so that you can inject it into a a diseased person, someone who already is sick, and that person then can rally. You might say his immune system, vital energies, can rally to fight the disease that he already has. And um, it seems to me that's sort of almost like a caricature of the modern disease theory that you... You know, if you have a, a, some kind of microbe or some pathogen that you inject into a health person, you can make them sick. But then if you draw out, let's say, a blood serum or whatever from that person, dilute it down enough, such as, for example, uh, when, they, when they make a vaccine, they, they so weaken the so-called virus or whatever, right? And, um, or even kill it, right? Not that it's alive, but they talk about incapacitating it injecting it but supposedly the idea with the with the vaccine is you inject that into a healthy individual which causes the vital energy or the immune system to make antibodies to it to protect the person against catching the disease but this says no you inject it into a person who already has the disease and it will rally the vital energies of the person to fight the disease that they already have so I found it rather odd and rather confusing the way it was explained. And um, I'm looking forward to the explanation. I'm, I'm going to be getting some from some traditional Catholics who I know are really intelligent and very capable people uh, because I think they can really clear this up. But we, we know uh, a number of people who are very much uh, sold on this and actually are uh, practicing it with, uh, they say, success, and I believe them that they... Uh, you know, because they're very worthy of credence, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from them about uh, how they can explain. I assume that in the course of time, since the 1400s, there have been developments. But I also assume that since the, the course of, in the course of time, since the 1400s, not all of those developments have been good. Well, as with anything, I assume there are those who really... Uh, represent this, the science of this well, and there are those who just don't, <laughs> right? And basically misrepresent it. And, uh, um, you know, they talk about, well, even the Catholic Encyclopedia article talked about quackery, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm not sure they had a term like that in the 1400s, but uh, it, it was applying to that, this whole idea of alternative medicine, um, but now we're in a, in a time, a day and age, when people are looking to alternative medicine because they feel that institutionalized medicine uh, 
has uh, become so commercialized that it is real fail. It fails as medicine, right? And I can understand very, very well why people are looking for alternatives. And what they're looking for now is uh, natural medicine. Mm -hmm. So I didn't equate natural natural medicine with homeopathy. There are those who probably do think they're one and the same thing. And perhaps they are nowadays, at least for some people, I don't know. But as I say, I, I'm looking forward to getting more information on this, especially from competent people in my confidence. Mm -hmm. And we'll pass it on to the viewers when we get that. Yeah, very good. Father, in this um, kind of a, a larger discussion about alternative medicine or natural medicine, natural cures, um, the uh, the claim sometimes comes up. People people will say that uh, that there is uh, that nature contains every cure for for every mm -hmm. disease. They say that no matter what the disease, no matter what the ailment is, somewhere out there in nature, God has given us the cure uh, for every one of these diseases. Would you agree with that? Is that a Catholic thing to say that every disease has a cure in nature? Well, one can say that. Um, I'm not sure what they're basing that on. Probably, the idea that God, in His providence, has 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 indeed provided for us uh, the means necessary to cure whatever ails us and to live happy, healthy lives. You know, maybe that's what they're saying. But uh, it seems to me that this is uh, is not well founded. Uh, not, I'm not doubting the providence of God, but I'm just saying that when God created us, our first parents, Adam and Eve, he created us with the gifts of immortality and impassibility. So why God would put into nature remedies for diseases that we were never really meant to have? Um, one might say, well, God foresaw that we would fall and we would need those things. Well, possibly so, but we realize also that because of the fall, we are now subject to illness and to death. And so, um, is that somehow antithetical to the idea that, well, God is also hidden in nature, everything we need to defeat all the diseases, and even death itself, perhaps, you know, they might argue. Um, well, I, I don't see um, the logic of it. I mean, is it possible that God has buried in nature and uh, that has left us to our ingenuity that he himself has given to us uh, to discover it? Uh, and to cure diseases, well, we have been, had a measure of success in that, haven't we? And yet we can't cure the common cold. We haven't found really a cure for cancer yet either, although there are reports of some amazing things that people are using that are not necessarily on the um, uh, medical business radar, <laughs> you know. Um, you hear some pretty encouraging reports out there from people who are getting some good results. But nonetheless, uh, I don't think that um, what we know from, from faith, and that, that is God created us uh, impassable and um, immortal, uh, necessarily demands that he, at the same time, sow into nature the cure for every disease mm -hmm. that we have. And certainly not the cure for every, um, uh, you know, uh, problem with metabolism or anything else that might, might happen. Because why? We, we have been made subject to suffering and death. And I, I don't know that uh, God has placed here the means for us to defeat all, all that. Um, 
the disease of the body and uh, and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think, by the way? Does that make sense to you? That that does make sense. Um, we um, um, just mentioned this earlier that um, you know this is a, a valley of tears we live in the uh, the earth that we live on. I mean, it's we're in a we're in a state of banishment. Um, mm-hmm. This is not our, our true home, so uh, it would it would certainly make sense that we are um, expected to live with these sicknesses and, and diseases to some extent. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. as, we, as we say, a, a place of banishment, so it makes sense that we have to suffer these things. So for God, he certainly would not be required. It doesn't seem to provide every cure for yeah. us. Um, so. Right, well, I learned what miracles to, to cure people of diseases, and, uh, um, you know, it would have been rather peculiar if, if he would have said, well, you know, there are natural cures for all this, but... <laughs> Uh, we don't have time for that, so I'm just going to cure myself. Yeah. But yes, everything you're suffering right now, the dropsy and leprosy and so on and so forth, there are natural cures for all these things. Uh, I don't see anything like that in the Gospels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what it does remind me of, though, and I don't mean to point the finger at anybody, because I don't think they have this in mind when they say this, <clears throat> about you know natural cures being everywhere in nature, and we can find them and cure ourselves of all the diseases we have. Um, but the globalists are the ones who are saying, we can find cures for everything. We can even cure uh, death. We can cure old age. You know, We can give you everlasting life almost. You know? yeah. um, they haven't quite extended themselves to that point. But they say with the, uh, uh, what is that, uh, adachrome or whatever they... Adrenochrome. Adrenochrome. Yeah. You're taking the blood of young people and ingesting yeah. that. They can regenerate you. Supposedly, there's a big business in that billing with the blood of the youngsters, which is also a very great concern with uh, the, the pedophile business right now. Yeah. Um, I think there's something to that. Yeah. But, uh, but again, this whole idea of extending our lives um, to two or three times the length of what you know, is the common lifespan now, and uh, basically overcoming all diseases and so on by, by our wits, and that's kind of creating another Garden of Eden for ourselves here. Yeah. Well, there's a danger in that, too, to say, look, all the, solu- the solutions to all the suffering, it's all there, God put it here. It's almost like suggesting that we can, um, you know, overcome all of these things we do suffer and create a, a kind of a Garden of Eden, almost, as I say, thinking like the, the globalists who say, well, you know, who needs God? We can have our own paradise here. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's what they're thinking when they say that God placed remedies here in nature. Mm-hmm. I do believe, by the way, that there are remedies in nature, right? And we find them there. And they are God-given. I do believe that. But the idea that we can cure everything, um, uh, I think that's uh, not founded, not well-founded. Father, to uh, to what extent do we have a responsibility to uh, to seek a cure for every disease? Is there um, is there any merit in just accepting sicknesses sometimes as a as a punishment, as a trial for God, as a uh, as a way to actually perform some penance from Him? Do we have a responsibility? Well, I might do that myself, but it's an act of charity for me, for example, to devote my time, my effort, my talents. To finding a cure for others' sufferings, right? Mm. Uh, I, I could say, well, 
you know, we should all bear hunger patiently and thirst patiently and so on. But that doesn't absolve me of the need to practice the corporal works of mercy. I might say that I will endure hunger and I will endure a cold and I will endure a thirst patiently. But I can't necessarily pronounce that on everybody else and say, and you're going to endure it patiently too. Um, and I'm not going to do a thing to help you. Remember what our Lord said to those who were blessed and those who were cursed. The difference was that they would not perform the works of mercy, you know, giving to those who are hungry and thirsty and so on. So we're called upon to relieve the sufferings of others. We're certainly... Um, uh, you know, called upon to carry the cross after our Lord too. But even there, I mean, even with the church's fasting, the church says, yes, we are obliged to fast uh, at certain times during the year in honor of our Lord's suffering and death for us. But the church always says, but if that would prevent you from fulfilling your responsibilities in life, your God-given responsibilities in life, let's say as a mother or father, uh, or, you know, whatever other job you have, you know, that involves caring for others, then you cannot, you know, give up food that would impair your performance in taking care of people. So, again, the priorities that our Lord has set there remain, are reflected in the churches, uh, you know, telling us, take care of the responsibility, your God-given responsibilities first. Mm-hmm. And any penances you're doing that would impede that, you have to give them up. Your primary responsibility, as Lucia was to say at one point about, uh, you know, at Fatima, is to fulfill the duties of your state in life. That's your primary responsibility before God. Yeah. That's the sacrifice God wants of all in the first place. Yeah. Father, how, uh, just in general, how would you recommend a... Catholic form a right, um, right judgment of, of uh, all of these things. I mean, in, in regards to um, sickness, illness, ailments, and uh, natural cures. Um, so it seems there's so much danger out there. There's so much misinformation and contrary information, and uh, it, it could be very easy to go to extremes. It seems. Um, and what it to, seems... to find relief? Yeah, um, just to to get involved in, in natural remedies but even even in like we talked about the institutionalized medicine i mean placing too much um hope in that and there's so many dangers in that now it seems to to the point where we can't even trust that so well it seems and i'm not an avid television listener but i have heard and i've been told (laughs) about um, it seems like virtually every other commercial on television now is about some some medicine to cure you of this or cure you of that yeah and some miracle drug, and constantly coming up with new names uh, for new chemical um, concoctions they're selling you. The pharmaceutical companies are just all over the place. And they've got doctors pushing the pills too, you know. Uh, and um, But then also, how many of these same commercials are from law firms suing pharmaceutical companies for the damage these same, you know, the the latest, greatest um, drug has done. You know, one year they came out with this uh, great miracle drug that's going to cure you of psoriasis or whatever. And within two years, they're being sued for people who have had uh, heart damage or, you know, uh, (laughs) other uh, blood clotting or whatever from these uh, same drugs they're pushing. 
so that now, you know, you read what the drug can do of good for you on the one side, and on the other side of the label, it's all the harmful side effects. You know, pull the, pull the, uh, the paper, the explanatory paper out of the box with the pills, and you've got this basically a novel, you know, it yeah. seems, in tiny, tiny, you know, three-point, two-point type, it seems, um, listing all of the side effects. And some of them are really dreadful, mm. even worse than the disease, you know. So, um, yes, I mean, one, one can um, be driven almost mad with this kind of thing, <laughs> to the point where they just do th irrational things even anti-rational things um, by all these promises of miracle cures and all the rest, you know. And But that can be true also of, uh, you know, the, the big business pharmaceuticals today, but also of those who are pushing various alternative medicines too. I mean, you can still have the the guy pulling through town with a wagon with the magic elixir. Um, they call them the snake oil salesman. You know, you can still have that too. Wherever there's a lot of money to be made, there are people who are going to take advantage of it one way or the other. So it has to be very, very careful. It has to pray to God for guidance in this and always do the prudent thing. Ideally, one would have a knowledgeable person whom they trust and can consult to guide them in this so that they do not they're not taken advantage of. When they're taken advantage of, they have a lot more to lose their money in this. Uh, they can lose their health, suffer grave uh, physical harm. But, of course, in seeking relief, they can also suffer grave spiritual harm. Yeah. You know, give me relief at all costs. How does that coincide with what our Lord said? If you want to be my disciples, you must take up your cross every day and follow me and not try to escape every ache and pain. To escape the debilitating aches and pains and so on, yes, of course. Uh, one can make reasonable efforts to do that. Why? Because if they are debilitating, they can prevent one from, um, shall we say, fulfilling their locations, right? Yeah. Can cripple them. But if that's God's will, then that, that is the vocation. We're all, our, the vocation for all of us here is sanctification. And that sanctification is going to have to take place to a great extent through mortification of our wills and of our bodies. And that, that's going to mean suffering. We're going to be uncomfortable, often in pain. And we just have to tough through it. But if there's anything that a human being admires, it is the example of a hero who can brave all kinds of danger and pain and fight through it and do the job, right, for good and accomplish the good. Those are our heroes, right? Those are our saints, right, in the spiritual realm. So maybe the reason why people are so uh, just desperate to reach for the magic pill is because they were never inspired by the example of the saints who didn't have the magic pill, right? Who just toughed it out and heroically, lived their lives faithful to God, and accomplished amazing things. I think of St. Father Junipero Serra out in California. 
I mean, I think of St. Alphonsus uh, Liguria. I mean, you can practically name any saint. And they all had to, um, quote-unquote, tough it out through uh, great hardships, you know. And th that's precisely why they're saints and precisely why we admire them and consider them heroes today. That actually goes for our natural heroes, too. You know, you go back to pagan times when you had... Um, even Romans and Greeks who were known for their heroic behavior. And even they, who didn't do it out of love for God, they did it out of a sense of what honor and country and whatever it is they held dear, the family, and they made sacrifices. And we admire them for that. There's very little seemingly out there to admire right now. Because everybody seems to be, not everybody, but somebody just seemed to be in this desperate struggle to avoid yeah. hardship, disappointment. Everybody has a sense of entitlement, right? And so they say, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be pain-free. I deserve to be this. I deserve to be that. Hey, one thing they say in these commercials I've heard is, get the relief you deserve, you know? Get the satisfaction you deserve. You think, well, who are they to tell me what I deserve? They have no idea what I deserve. Who do they think they are? You know, you have to be offended by that. But no, I, I'm afraid there are too many people saying, yeah, that's right. I deserve this. And that sense of entitlement is killing us. Yeah. Spiritually, as well as physically, I think, too. Yeah. Okay. That's very good, Father. Very uh, interesting discussion. We'll uh, look forward to uh, having some follow-up information that we can uh, delve into. And uh, Well, we would get some comments from people who would... Uh, uh, beg to differ, but yeah. okay. <laughs> We're open to that, too. Yes, definitely. They're welcome. Well, okay, a couple other uh, viewer questions tonight, um, Father. For the program, before we close, uh, one of our viewers wanted to know, are the Jewish people still considered to be God's chosen people? Uh, no, they rejected that. They rejected God. They rejected His Son. They were chosen uh, to be the progenitors, as it were, of the of the Savior, of the Redeemer, the Promised One. And so they rejected him. And uh, that's what St. Paul is saying, that now Jewish convert to Christ and Gentile convert to Christ, they are, they are well, to use another expression, they are the chosen people, in a sense. Those are the people who are faithful to God. And um, those, who, those who reject Christ, reject the Savior, and uh, they reject, by rejecting God the Son, they reject God the Father. And um, no, they, they are not. Now, you know, St. Paul does make it clear that in the end, in the Apocalypse chapter 7, he talks about 144,000 signed of the tribes of the descendants of Abraham, yeah. who he marked with the sign of the Son of Man. Right? These will be converts. They will be the great, great saints of the latter days, right? But uh, for those who reject Christ, uh, willfully and resolutely reject Christ, no. I mean, they cannot be, quote-unquote, the chosen people. Yeah. Oh, right. Interesting. All right. Uh, another question, Father. This is in regards to uh, the uh, Unakum Mass, which I know you've touched on several times, but uh, one of our viewers framed the, the question in this way. He asked if it is a sin for Catholics to pray with non-Catholics. And 
If so, wouldn't that make it a sin to attend an unicum mass where, where Francis's name is mentioned? Because Francis is not a Catholic, Arbiter says. Well, this individual may be very well convinced, as I am, uh, that Francis is not a Catholic. But the fact that I say he's not a Catholic, and the fact that this individual says he's not a Catholic doesn't make him not a Catholic, right? Um, so we do not have any magisterial authority to, to pronounce that fact. We can be convinced of it ourselves, and we can act upon that and actually judge the He's not a Catholic, he doesn't have the faith, he's not a member of the church, can't be the Pope, whatever we might say. But that's a matter of personal conviction. Uh, that's a personal conclusion we've come to, logical, theological, but not magisterial, right? Because we are not the magisterium. I am not the magisterium of the church, nor is the individual who's asking the question. And so we have to accept that limitation on our own part. Um, so, I mean, is it a sin for Catholics to pray with non-Catholics? Well, it is only if the non-Catholics are voicing in their prayers things that are contrary to the Catholic faith. Yeah. But if they are actually voicing a belief that are uh, certainly in accord with the Catholic faith, it is not a sin to pray with them, right? Now, there would be another case where it might be scandalous, where people might be scandalized if we're praying for others, uh, with others who manifestly have contempt for the Catholic faith, and so on. For example, uh, Blessed Oliver Plunkett, the Scotsman, uh, would not pray with his uh, executioners, right? He said, no, I will not pray with you uh, because you have adulterated the faith. And in those days, there was such a sharp conflict there that it was clear. A clear choice, and he would not pray with them. And he said, don't bury me among you either, because I will not be buried with heretics. But, you know, if you have uh, people who, and there are a lot of these people today who um, really don't even understand and don't know much, uh, but they, they do believe, um, you know, they believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They believe the Son of God became man and died on the cross for us. They believe he's their Savior. Um, and this is what they're expressing. It's not sinful to, uh, to pray with them. In fact, I would hope in praying with them, you'd be praying for them, for their conversion. And you should tell them so. Tell them, look, I'm praying with you for the sake of praying for you. And I'm begging that God will give you the rest of the, uh, knowledge of the rest of the faith mm -hmm. to but, know him more but, perfectly. So it wouldn't be, wouldn't be sinful to do that. But would that, would that line of thinking apply in the case of Francis, who says and does manifestly non-Catholic, anti-Catholic things? Well, I mean, I don't pray with Francis, frankly, right? And, um, you know, because so much of what he said is, says is inimical to the faith and scandalous, right? That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, but we're not talking about praying with Francis. We're talking about somebody saying an unicum mass, meaning that one is saying that he is one in faith with Francis. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would actually ask that person who's, who's saying the unicum mass uh, that do you believe you are one in faith with Francis? Now most of those who are saying this would say, oh I'm not saying I'm one in faith with him, I'm, I'm actually praying for him. Yeah. Uh, a priest um, of the, you know, like a, a Novus Ordo priest who says the Latin, traditional Latin mass or some reasonable facsimile thereof, the 1962 version, might say, well, I understand this to mean that I'm praying for Francis, and I'm praying for his conversion. 
And I would ask him, well, are you telling me he's not a Catholic and, and you're calling him the Pope here? Do you see a problem with that? That you have to convert uh, the man to Catholicism, the man you say is your, your Pope? And, um, but you point out to him, but, but what you are saying does have the meaning that you are one in faith. That's what the una means, well, one, one faith, right? Um, and uh, you are saying that. Do you have the same faith as Francis? Well, no, I told you I'm praying for his conversion, so obviously I don't have the same faith. So I try to tell the individual, try to convince him, that he's being not only illogical, but actually contradictory. Um, would it be a sin to attend such a Mass if it were valid? I mean, it was supposed to, the priest was somehow validly ordained, not according to the new rite or by a yeah. new rite bishop. Uh, would it be a sin to attend that? I, I don't think it would be a sin to attend it as long as we made it clear where he stood. Saying, uh, I don't think you understand what you're saying correctly, and I, I want you to know I do not, I do, I'm not one with Francis. I am not unicum with Francis. Um, and I think as long as one makes that clear, I think one could, if that's the only Mass that was valid, offered by a validly ordained priest, who himself has the faith, however, maybe he has not quite there yet, you know, to figure out um, the whole the whole picture. I think if that's all you had, I think that one could, um, in good conscience, attend that. I think it would be scandalous, on the other hand, if one were to attend it and say, "Well, I'm here, and I'm attending this because I'm one with Francis." I don't. I don't think one could honestly say that if he personally was convinced that Francis is not a Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit of a stretch, and you can hear in what I'm explaining this. I'm saying, you know, it, it is. It is problematic, you know. But I think of people out there who have nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing, and they're out in the middle of the desert without any valid sacraments, you know. And they're wondering, what do I do? Uh, you know, how do I, how do I even, uh, you know, approach anyone for absolution, confession, uh, to receive our Lord in Holy Communion? Is it, is it possible for me even now? Now, what I described here is kind of a rarity, I think. Uh, anyway, finding a priest who is ordained in the traditional rite by a bishop who himself is a bishop in the traditional rite, and they both have the integrity of the faith. And, uh, you know, this going back to traditional times. So there's an unbroken line of those who are ordained in the traditional rites by those who are themselves ordained and consecrated in the traditional rites. And that they're actually offering the Mass validly. Okay. Uh, would the fact that the priest is reading Uricum and putting Francis's name there, would that mean that one could not go to it? Well, um, if... If by doing that, they believe I'm professing to be one in faith with Francis, I myself am professing to be one in faith with Francis, then I couldn't go yeah. in good conscience. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. This individual, I don't think could, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Perhaps that's as far as you need to go right now. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, Father, if the traditional clergy cannot grant annulments, what recourse do the faithful have who are in a marriage with strong grounds for annulment? What can they do? If the traditional clergy cannot grant annulments, what record, recourse do they have? 
Well, who says that they have strong grounds for annulment? Maybe they do. Yeah. But the fact that they have some subjective certitude on their part, even, that they have strong grounds for annulment is not grounds for annulment at all, you know? Um, and the church has made that very clear. It's a magisterial decree of the church. It's not a, a theological opinion that their marriage was not valid. It's a magisterial decree with certitude that they were never validly married. And each one of those cases is considered individually so that one cannot take any one judgment of any one marriage and apply it to his own, right? Yeah. It's a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. So, uh, but there may be individuals out there who have convinced themselves, and maybe some of them, you know, rightly so, that they have some kind of traditional grounds for annulment, which they will not pursue with the Novus Ordo because they realize that that is worthless. The judgment of the new order bishops cannot be trusted because they're annulling marriages for whatever reasons. Um, and often they will not even give the reason. Um, but then they will go to, a, let's say, a traditional priest or even a traditional bishop and say, I, I think I have grounds for an annulment. And any really traditional Catholic priest or traditional Catholic bishop will say, well, I cannot give you an annulment. I'm not the magisterium of the church to, to give you an authoritative decree about whether your marriage is valid or not. I can give you a theological opinion, but that means nothing in the practical order for you. That does not mean you were not validly married. It just means, in my opinion, there's a reason for thinking you weren't validly married that could possibly be considered such in a tribunal, uh, traditionally. That's all it's worth, really. Mm -hmm. But uh, right now, uh, a couple in a situation like that, if they got together, they made their marriage vows, they signed the forms, they did the marriage investigation, swearing to their intentions and all the rest. And this was all done very, very publicly, according to the church's uh, prescriptions. And later on, they, they think they've discovered a reason why they were never very validly married. Um, they, they can't go to the Novus Ordo and have any traditional priest recognize that, the validity of that. Well, any real traditional priest. They can't go to a traditional priest who can give them an annulment for them. So they simply have to say, in my, in my thought, and actually the Society of St. Pius V, I think, we all share that same that same understanding uh, that well you made this choice you proceeded down the aisle you intended to be their wife you thought they intended to be your husband and vice versa you lived like that for years had children by them right and um, the fact that somewhere along the line you became unhappy and began to look for and discover grounds why you convinced yourself you never really married them. You have to live with that. You have to live with the choices that you made. This is God, what God is asking you to do now. Why? Because the matrimony enjoys the favor of law, and you went through the marriage preparation and the marriage ceremony, and you lived as husband and wife, and um, um, the only thing that can undo that uh, is a, declare of null, a declaration of nullity that is that is reliable, and you cannot risk your soul on a declaration that is unreliable. I cannot give you 
and no traditional priest can give you that declaration. And the Novus Ordo certainly is incapable of, un, unreliable in doing so. So if you really are intent on saving your soul, you have to live at least a celibate life. You just can't say, well, I think I have grounds for an annulment, so I'm giving myself the annulment. And I'm going to go off and find another husband or another, another wife. Can't do that. Yeah. That would be an abomination. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, last question for tonight, Father. What uh, some, several of our viewers actually wanted to know, what, did, what do you think of uh, Father, Father Francis Fenton? Um, was he a faithful, traditional Catholic priest? Oh, yes, I believe so, absolutely. Well, I knew Father Fenton since my days as a teenager. You know? uh, that was a couple of years ago. Just a couple. Um, and uh, Father Fenton was already the, the stalwart. Uh, he was from, uh, I think, uh, Stratford, Connecticut. He had parished there, from which he was duly, uh, shall we say, fired because of his fiery rhetoric. He was a very, very powerful speaker, actually. And he, um, he did not shrink from uh, stating the facts as he saw them. He was very forthright in his, in his speeches. Um, he actually traveled the country, mostly where he was asked to go, he would go. And he would speak to groups of people to explain to them what was happening in the church back in the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s. And um, he was very, very powerful. He saw that the church had been infiltrated by communists, by masons, and so on. And he saw that Paul VI and those who came after him, uh, um, John Paul II, and so on, that they were subverting the church. He, he made no, no excuses for them. He was just saying, look, all we can do, we, and what we must do, is hold fast, hold fast. Uh, in fact, uh, Father was instrumental in starting what was called the Orthodox Roman Catholic Movement back then, what was called the ORCM. Um, and uh, its publication was a pamphlet called, uh, or a little booklet called Holding Fast. And that was really Father Fenton's um, whole life was a matter of holding fast. Uh, he was ill. He had a number of operations. I think finally he was left with about one-eighth of a stomach, you know. And yet he was still surviving on black coffee and donuts. I've never, I don't recall seeing him ever eat anything than black coffee and donuts. <laughs> and I spent enough time with him to be able to testify. Um, but I've always known him to be a man of absolute integrity, but indomitable faith. And if he believed something was right, and it was a matter of fidelity to Christ, it, it, the cost didn't matter to him, personal cost to himself. He would just take the stand that he believed uh, that was the right thing to do, and let our Lord take care of the rest. So I still to this day have a great uh, admiration for Father Fenton. His writings were very powerful. Even to read his writings or listen to the recordings of his, of his talks today, they haven't lost any of their forcefulness. Perhaps they've even gained some forcefulness in light of Francis now, mm -hmm. that uh, Father Fenton was sort of prescient, almost prophetic in what he had to say. So I, I like I like to expect I have an undying admiration for him, and I still do pray for him and offer mass for him this day. Okay. Uh, Father has been uh, well. God took him many years ago, and uh, but I can still consider him a friend. And now, actually, uh, 
become patriot in the, the priesthood. At that time, I was very young. And even, I mean, he survived to see me newly ordained, but uh, not much time after that. You know? yeah. there you go. So, uh, anyway, I, I guess that uh, tells you what I, okay. my high estimation of Father yeah. Fenton. If you get recordings of his talks, and you probably can find them online, uh, they're well worth listening to. Very good. But if you listen, pray for him, too. Yeah. Father, in closing, any, uh, any brief Christmas message for our viewers? Well, yes, uh, Tom. You know, people think about uh, Christmas. They think about the, the manger. They think about the shepherds and the sheep and the kings. And, and yet, well, we should because they were all part of the Christmas uh, narrative there. But, you know, the, the central idea is the very reality that God became man in the womb of a virgin mother, that God took humanity, human nature. And so you have a man who is a divine person, the Son of God, in humanity, and um, was actually born. You know, we think the stable, we think of all the other things associated with his birth, but the very fact that God was born into this world as man, just the fact alone, even apart from all other attendant circumstances, is, is absolutely phenomenal. It's mind-boggling. It's just, uh, how can one describe, you know, just the impact of that reality that God himself was born a man. And uh, he took our humanity. He came here, as he said, to seek and to save what was lost. So we need to think about it. here, Almighty God, when we had abandoned him and tried to shut him out, he actually comes into this world to find us, to seek us, to rescue us. It was a rescue mission, right? It's an astounding thought, really. And uh, if only we appreciated more the fact and what, it, what does it tell us about God? And uh, what does it tell us about God telling us about ourselves, really, who we are to Him? Uh, what value our souls are to Him? What our love means to Him? Um, and what His love should mean to us? So, uh, Yes, we, we do uh, wonder at the various aspects of our Lord's birth, the manger and, and, and Herod seeking his life. and Those are all significant. But to just think about, to ponder the very idea of God becoming incarnate, taking flesh, becoming man, and actually placing himself in this world in our power and all for the sake of repairing the insult of our sins to the Father in heaven and to seek and to save us who are lost. It's uh, worthy of meditation. Absolutely. Father, thank you. God bless you. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, thank you, Tom. God bless you, too. Yeah. God bless all of our viewers. Too. Absolutely. Thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What the Catholics Believe. 
Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.